0: Welcome to International History Declassified, the podcast that provides an insider's view of the history of the post war world and the historians who study it. International History Declassified is a production of the History and Public Policy Program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars.
1: Hello and thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Peter Bierstaker. And I'm your co-host, Keon Byrne. The Wilson Center's History and Public Policy program uses archival sources and history to improve understanding of important global dynamics, trends in international relations, and US foreign policy. The program is home to the Digital Archive, a free online resource of newly declassified materials from around the world, available and accessible at www.digitalarchive.org.
2: In each episode of International History Declassified, Peter and I will sit down with historians to discuss their work and experiences researching in the field of international history. By examining their sources and methods, we hope to share with you the latest research being done on many different events, periods, and places that help shape our understanding of the world today.
1: Welcome to another episode of International History Declassified. Today, we have a conversation with a young researcher who's doing some cutting edge work in the Latin American archives. Rene Cordero is a Ph.D. candidate at Brown University working on Latin American social movements and politics during the Cold War. His work examines how the student movement in the Dominican Republic galvanized different sectors of Dominican society and embraced a hemispheric and global circulation of discourses on racial consciousness, anti-imperialism, and historical revisionism. Rene is coordinator of the Dominican section of Opening the Archives, an online archive housed at Brown University that documents U.S.-Dominican relations during the Cold War. Rene, welcome.
0: Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having
1: me. Great. Wonderful. So to begin with, uh, what are the origins of the uh, Opening the Archives Dominican Republic project? Uh, how did it come to be? Why was the focus uh, on the post Trujillo era? And what resources are currently available for researchers uh, who are studying Latin American Cold War history?
0: Thank you. Great question. So the Opening of the Archives project emerged from an initiative that first began with Brazil. And there's a really interesting... Side note here about this, because the reason why we did the Dominican Republic is because if we all know our, you know, sort of Caribbean Latin American history, we know that Brazil was the one who led the Latin American contingency of invasion to the Dominican Republic in 1965. In fact, um, uh, the president of Brazil at that time begged the US to let them lead the the OAE forces that would serve as a supplement to the 20,000 Marines that arrived in the Dominican Republic. And so Professor James Green, when I applied to Brown University, saw my project and saw what I was doing. And he said, this is perfect to converge both academia with that archival bent to it, right? And so opening the archives emerged out of The work that was already being done in Brazil with the opening the archives project and saying, well, if there's a connection here with 65 and this unacknowledged, uh, history of invasion uh, or underrepresented history of invasion in the Caribbean, then why don't we do an offshoot from Brazil? And it so happened though that province is the second largest Dominican population, uh, in the United States before New York, after New York. Right. And so it fit right in with both the academic agenda, but also the historical agenda that we were going for, which was these hemispheric connections of Cold War uh, tensions and imperialism. And so what does this what does it consist of? Well, the right now we have about 20,000 documents that feature or that are are in the process of being indexed both the Lyndon Johnson uh, archives in uh, Austin Texas the uh, of course national security archive in Maryland um and the Kennedy archive and so slowly but surely we're trying to implement um uh, the Dominican archives later in the future though and oral histories as well for later in the future but for right now what you will see there are 60s and 70s documents of all kind communiques, telegrams, letters, even portions of student newspapers, uh, because the student movement was very active in the Dominican Republic at that time. And so that's most of what you'll find right now. And the resources that are being used are mostly um, uh, made and for undergrads that are looking to expand sort of this Caribbean Dominican Republic experience during the Cold War, which is quite quite um, underrepresented in. Um,
2: yeah, actually, uh, for those of us who are unfamiliar with uh, Dominican history um, and you know, even Latin American history, uh, kind of more generally in the Cold War, can you go into a little bit about what was going on in the 60s and 70s in the DR?
0: Sure, sure, sure. You know, it's interesting, and, and uh, I would love to know what you all think about this, but the Dominican Republic has been in both location and uh, concept, a uh, very enigmatic uh, place of study. Right? Because it was where the Haitian Revolution occurred, but yet it wasn't, right? It was, it's one of the only Latin American, uh, countries to not fight Europe for independence, but hate, right? It had, it has had two U.S. invasions in less than a century, yet it's somehow left out of, uh, the Cold War narrative, overemphasized by the Cuban Missile Crisis, right, which is a lovely, right, uh, you know, event and place to study. But at the same time, we see how the Dominican Republic has always gotten sort of a uh, short shift in this historiography of Latin America. And so um, why the Dominican Republic is so important is because it's actually where Caribbean radicalism of anti-authoritarianism and, left, and, and you know, leftism uh, originated, right? Because if, if you go, go back, um, Fidel Castro was actually on a boat in 1947 on his way to go overthrow Rafael Trujillo in a, in what was a failed invasion because the boat couldn't work, so on and so forth. Then you go again in 59, an invasion, um, funded by the Cuban Revolution just six months after mm. its triumph in mm. 59, um, funded with Dominican exiles to go overthrow Trujillo. Once again. And so we see the, um, and not to even talk about the, also the historiographic connections that most of the political parties, uh, major political parties today in the Dominican Republic were formed in Cuba by exile inhabiting Cuba, right? And so we see, we start seeing these connections and we start seeing, well, maybe there's a missing piece of the puzzle here when we talk about the Dominican Republic and why, what is the political uh agenda in it's underrepresentation in cold
2: war
1: hmm. history right i i think you know certainly the 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 region is is one that um and and the Dominican republic, republic specifically is one that does not get a, a, its due attention in 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 the cold war history and and the story of of the cold war in the region um and i think that that really you know it's it's important uh the, to preserve, make available these sources. Uh, commend what your uh, your project is doing. Absolutely. Um, can you speak to why this is, you know, perhaps important not only to historians but, uh, you know, also to uh, the Dominican population? You yeah. mentioned the the large yeah. population in, in Providence and, and uh, obviously New York City. But uh, how is this sort of history and memory preserving it for for um, for a more general audience uh, as important as preserving it for an academic audience?
0: It's a great question. That's a great question, Peter. You know, um, it's interesting because once the uh, regime of Rafael Trujillo fell in 61, um, there were these series of regimes that came after him, particularly the regime of Joaquin Malaguer, who ruled with an iron fist similar to Trujillo um, for 12 years. In fact, throughout those 12 years, only students, just students, uh, we have four down some change, uh, deaths, assassinations, and torture victims from those, only from those 12 years. So you could almost say that the regime of Balaguer was, in fact, even worse than Trujillo, right? Because you had both a discourse of humanity going around with the Cuban revolution, and African independence and Asian independence, yet you had this quite authoritarian figure in the midst, right? Um, and so for many reasons, which I will not go into now, Dominican history has stopped at 61. Um, you wouldn't believe that there is not one monograph dedicated to the post revolution years in the English academia um, in the United States, uh, barring Elizabeth Manley's paradox of the term. But there isn't any literature on this, right? And what happens when these 12 years went unaccounted well, you have this sort of national trauma where you went through a dictatorship and there was no truth and reconciliation. No one was held accountable. In fact, I always tell the story of my mother, which um, I only knew of her uh, boyfriend's death when we were doing research together at the archive, right? So it's such a hitting nonsense because she doesn't even know what happened. Now we know, right? Because I was at the archive digging, but she didn't even know. We we everybody speculated that it was the reason. Right?
1: Sure, Renee, this is this is a fascinating story that you you've told to me and have uh, written about in in your blog post on sources and methods. Would you would you go and do it a little bit and 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 tell uh, tell our audience the story?
0: Sure. So you know, growing up in in, in Harlem, in New York, uh, around the Dominican community, I would you know as a as a curious kid, I would talk to everybody and say you know you know what why are we here? What got us here? What are we doing? And they would say, you know, oh, those were very difficult years, so we had to leave. Right? But I never understood really what difficult meant. You know, they would always leave it very vague. I think it was maybe a memory they didn't want to go back to. But they would always say it was a very, it was a, it was a very difficult. Place. And so it wasn't until you know I got interested in academia and research that I understood what they meant by that. That we were, in fact political, economic exiles. And so, um, when, uh, I start doing my research on this topic, um, back in, uh, 2013, or so, um, uh, my mother starts to get interested in it. She starts telling me about her activism and student politics and all that stuff. But I, I didn't know the violent extent. So when we're in their archive in the summer of 2018, um, I come home with these pictures because uh, one of my arguments was that uh, the regime of Joaquin Balaguer was so violent, particularly because the uh, the university, the only public university was starting to be flooded by um, not only different ideas about the medical history and culture but also by different uh, colors of skin and um and sexes and so. When I come home with these pictures of, pictures and these reports of these five assassinated young men in 1971, um, from one of the poorest, uh, um, barrios or neighborhoods of the Dominican Republic, she starts to cry. She starts to go into tears. And, you know, I, I was, I, I thought it was just because of the, the gruesomeness of the details and the and photos, but it ended up being that one of those victims was her first boyfriend. Um, wow. Uh, a boyfriend that she never, she could never, um, overcome, right? And so, um, traveling with those traumas to New York City, I, I, I was, I was interested in this and, and why is it that nobody's speaking about it? They only speak about the crimes of Trujillo, which is awesome, right? It's great. But there needs to be a reconciliation process because I come to find out through my research that my mother was not the only one, right? I have interviews of dozens of women and men who um still don't know how their brother died, still don't know how their cousin disappeared, um, still don't have a trace of this. And so opening the archives has that bent to it, in which I wanted to serve the community in the sense that I want people to start finding these things out. Right? Mm-hmm. In fact, one of the people that I was interviewing for my dissertation, um, I found his name at the archive. And um and how, and he, they would always call him crazy because he had the uh, feeling that the CIA was following him or or, 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 you know, these agents were looking over his shoulder. And then I said, and then in the interview, he tells me it's like everybody thought I was crazy. And then I sent him all of these documents about him at the, uh, you know, the, the secret service of the public aided by the CIA. And he, um, he then it, it made him feel uh that he wasn't crazy. So in fact that was being followed up. You know, it was being looked at. Uh, and, and all those little instances of how the archive becomes almost uh a thing in itself, right? It's no longer for academia, it's no longer in the hands of researchers. It it, it sort of exp- it expands.
2: Right. So I mean as as you're sort of, you know, uh dealing with these kind of heartbreaking stories that your family experience um and these people that you're interviewing experience how do you sort of uh negotiate that balance between your academic side and then your, you know, human side? And how do you engage with these, these, you know, subjects where a lot of people probably do want to know and do need to know. Um, But it's not like you can kind of just walk up to them and say, Hey, I found your brother. Right. I mean, how do, how do you, how do you, how do you deal with these, these kind of intense issues, personal, deeply personal issues yeah. as an yeah. academic and as a person? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. how do you combine the two? Yeah. that That is
0: a fabulous question because, I, I I almost think about that every day as I'm writing, because one of the things that you forget as you're doing this type of research and as you're finding out these gruesome stories, these traumatic stories, is that you forget that you're actually a historian. <laughs> you start forgetting because your human side is like, oh my God, these people are. Just, how are they even sane, right? Mm-hmm. And so you forget that, and you make the mistake, which I made in a couple of chapters, of romanticizing also the victims of these horrendous crimes, which does not take anything away from them, right? Um, But it is to suggest that while you have victims of violence, you also have these very complicated also instances of people being victims, but anti-Haitian at the same time, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And so you start seeing the tensions and contradictions of political activism and how do you go around that while also making justice to the things that those people, uh, and so, and so you're stuck within that, uh, uh, sort of frame, uh, of doing that. But then also, right, you have a personal stake in, in this thing, right? And so one of the things that hopefully my, my project does or, or this book does is that I, I would really love to help. Um, organizations, uh, museums that are, museums and organizations that are starting to talk about the Balagaluchi, because it, it, there is a movement now to start talking about it, which started about, I would say, five to ten years ago. And so, um, later on, I want to take off my historian cap and sort of do a more engaged activism, engaged intellectual activism with these organizations that are starting to, uh, mm-hmm. Bring this up, for example, the Museo de la Memoria, the Museum of Memory, um, just got installed, um, about five years ago, I believe it was. And opening the archives has that future lens of trying to see whether there can be some kind of, and hopefully, hopefully, uh, with the new political party in power, with the elections just passed, we can have sort of a, 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 a conversation about that. You know, one of the interesting things about the archive and collective memory and, 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 and uh, national trauma is that it gets expressed in these very odd ways. I'll give you an example. I was on the train on the way to the archive during my research. visit. All of a sudden, I start looking at the names of the train stops. One after the other, I started realizing, oh my God, you have someone who was clearly assassinated by the regime of Joaquin Balaguer, two stops away from the stop Joaquin Balaguer, you know what I'm saying? And so <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. And it goes on and on and on. You have Rafael, you have like, you have these very interesting, uh, like you have one of the generals that you know, was responsible for the overthrow of one of the only um, democratically elected uh, candidates, right? The 20th century before 78, the regime. And then you have the general, and then you have the president that was overthrown by that, person. Mm-hmm. right? And like two stops after, and so you have these little ways in which you, um, these things get reproduced and, and, and come out of that memory mm-hmm. without unconsciously almost.
1: Oh, sure, and and uh, that's that's uh, it, it's a challenge, I think. You know, m- balancing uh, sort of. What we're experiencing this in, the, in in the United States as well. How to how to yeah. deal with historical memory and um, and you know recognize um, some say honor the the past and and or, and deal with uh, traumatic chapters. I think there's a, an interesting parallel there. I um, want to switch uh, just a quick second to uh, something you wrote about in in, in your blog post, uh, which was uh, a, a similar type of archival awakening that you've you've seen happening in uh, Guatemala, uh, especially with the millions of police documents that. Um, yeah reappeared uh, and, and spurred renewed discussions uh, about historical memory and justice. Uh, are there any other Latin American countries that, you know, you hope uh, to see similar awakenings in, uh, hope to contribute to their international history of the of the Cold War in the region so we're not just focusing on the Cuban Missile Crisis for the, you know, whatever anniversary we have coming up?
0: <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. Besides Brazil, which which Open Archives have already, and the Dominican Republic, of course, um the case of Guatemala is so amazing because you have the archive being something that it was not intended to be for, right? Uh, it goes from surveillance to this act of political redemption and personal redemption, right? And same thing we saw with Chile um, uh, and the arrest of Pinochet, right? Is all these records coming up from declassification process that start um, to do this now, one of the things that I would like is to see Mexico in this conversation, mm-hmm. uh, because what we find is that Mexico gets sort of exonerated almost from this Cold War scene because it's it, it um you know it boasted the relationship with the with Cuba during while U.S. was sanctioning them and all that stuff, and it also boasts uh, about a stable democracy and this idea of a of the pre being sort of um, uh, stable throughout the 20th century, <laughs> but I would love to see though, um, you know, uh, records coming out of the massacre of La uh and in 68, you know, and the systematic killing of union leaders um, and uh, uh, peasant leaders as well, right? And so I, I'd be I'd be really interested to see how countries that uh, boasted this stability during the Cold War divide somehow starts to decide this myth somehow starts to get shattered as we go into the documents and see what are still declassified uh, documents from that era. And so Mexico is one of those that I would love to see start that process of, um, sort of Cold War reckoning.
2: Yeah, uh, I, I would agree. <laughs> is there anywhere you'd like to go outside of Latin America? Uh, anywhere that you can sort of envision pushing this conversation where people should be focusing their efforts?
0: Oh yeah, oh yeah. And you know, I was just thinking about this yesterday because you know what one country I would love to see more of in this uh, process of declassification and and Hmm. sort of reconciliation is England, actually. Hmm. Um, We have been overwhelmingly focused on, which is of course great, right? On American slavery and US uh, uh, sort of um, reconciliation processes reparation and stuff, but um, I feel that uh, England gets overshadowed. Mm. Britain gets overshadowed in that sense because we have a country that um, was very involved in the Cold War scenario, particularly with countries like uh, uh, Vienna mm-hmm. and and these Caribbean countries that like the New Jewel movement of that, right? And so there's something to be said about the post- 1945 world of England's reconciliation process with, hmm. the, with these peripheries right, um, like Barbados, like Trinidad, and in which intelligence forces of Britain were particularly responsible for um, the, the interruption of some democratic processes. And so I would love to see this transatlantic um, conversation going on.
2: Yeah. You do hear a lot more about Suez uh, and England right. post-war rather right. than really the Car- the Caribbean. So that, yeah. that's a really interesting point.
1: So uh, one final question here that we like to ask uh, each and every one of our guests. Uh, it's sort of a recurring theme. Um, is there a document? Is there something you've discovered in your time in the archives that uh, has either uh, shifted your understanding of a of a historical period event uh, figure, uh, or just generally surprised you? Is there is there something that uh you know is there is there a document that comes to mind when when you think oh this is the coolest thing I've seen in the archives?
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's a, yep. I got a whole chapter on it actually. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's it's these photographs that I found, man. Uh, in the uh, Archivo, in the um, archives. Um, and one of the things, one of the the, the the prizes of working in the 20th century in the Cold War is that you have so many visuals, uh, visual material sources um, that you can glean from. And it's these, I wish I could share it with you guys, but, uh, and, and for the people who are listening, so they can see these photographs. I don't know how we can do that, but it's these photographs of these women who are starting to, uh, enter the political uh, student scene of the Dominican Republic. And so in Dominican historiography, there is this trend, which which is great, right? It started in the uh, 90s into the 2000s that started to argue um, that it was the diaspora, right? the Dominican diaspora, the Caribbean diaspora that lent the Dominican Republic or, Dominican people, this sort of awakening, racial awakening, right? Um, uh, because we experienced racism here very differently than we experienced in the Dominican Republic. The diaspora, therefore, uh, exported or imported, you could say, these ideas of, of racial consciousness and uh, anti imperialism, stuff like that. But the photos that I found in the Dominican Republic during this time, late 60s, we're talking about five years after the death of Trujillo, who uh, sanctioned a very deep anti-Haitian and anti-Black ideology of the Dominican Republic. Five, 60 years after, you have these women donning these beautiful Afros and this style of dress that they were, I wouldn't say copying, but that they were imitating from Harlem, New York in the 1960s and 1970s, right? And so if you put them together, Right, this, these the styles of dress of uh, the emerging styles of dress in Harlem, and how these Dominican women were appearing. I, I call it a, a sort of a, a politics of body of the body, hmm. in which these women were making themselves present through this quite, I would imagine at the time, radical uh, hmm. idea of the Afro and the style of dress. And so um, coupled with that, you have in the university, an increase of 747% of uh, women, both black and white, Dominican women, Dominican black and white women um, entering the university in a 10 year span. So this was literally a floodgate of uh, these types of women entering the university. And I got so excited about it because it sort of totally upended what we thought uh, what was a recent phenomenon of natural hair uh, occurring like in, in, in the United States and in the Republic. We kind of see the genealogy of this in the 60s and 70s political activism of students. And I found that fascinating, just that with photographs, you can make a statement about what we thought was a new trend, right? It being uh, sort of something that was actually couched in the sexy 70s. Uh, activism, sort of showing that there's really nothing new under the sun in a way, right? So I I found that really fascinating.
2: That is really cool. And again, we see the parallels of sort of the the United States experience with the Caribbean experience uh, occurring at the same time and in the 70s with Title IX also at the same time. Yeah.
1: Well, Renee, we thank you very much for coming on and speaking with us today. It's been illuminating. It's been a fascinating story. Um, There's a quote from a a presentation you made at Brown University uh, where you said, every Dominican thinks he's a historian. And coming from a rich storytelling tradition, uh, I think uh, this is uh, there's an amazing wealth of knowledge to be to be gleaned from the Dominican archives and speaking with researchers and folks like you who are doing the work uh, to bring this history to the forefront. So thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much, Peter. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Ken. Thanks, Thanks. Renee. Thank you.
1: As always, you can get in touch with us by emailing coldwar at wilsoncenter.org. We'd like to thank Graham Norwood for this podcast's music.
0: You've been listening to International History Declassified, a podcast focused on history, historians, their sources, and their methods. International History Declassified is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. And for more information on a world of topics, issues, and ideas, please visit wilsoncenter.org. International History Declassified is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for
2: Scholars.